Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people like Kathleen Minogue, Brendan Rutledge, Brooke Sutton, Kath Haskell, and Dave Burris. Join them and me and the rest of the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, live salons, free admission to live events, and our Team Human team feed with special interviews, talks, and rare conversations. Thanks. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. This is where we exchange sovereignty for solidarity, wealth for well-being, profit for prosperity, and independence for interdependence. It's not too late to make the trade. I know I did. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today political economist and social technologist at Microsoft, and a researcher at the Radical Exchange Foundation, Divya Siddharth. Why are our technologies trying to get rid of humanity so bad? You know, like, why is it the case that we want to replace humans or replace trust or, like, all of these different kinds of things when our greatest successes and and joys come from embracing what's human and, of course, making it better? Divya will be introducing us to the Pluriverse and challenging us to consider just how many worlds are possible. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been reintroduced to the horror of the college application process as my daughter's become a high school junior and has just stepped foot into that world of PSATs and ACTs and GPAs and extracurrics and all this stuff. And uh, boy, it's like triggering for me. I'm reminded of just how 
awful it was. You know, I mean, I'm I'm distant from it now. It was junior year of high school. It was, God, you know, 40 years ago or something crazy. But boy, I can remember it as clear as day, this, this uh, self-appraisal and coming up with essays. And then there were these like little questions that each college had. And, you know, you're not really no matter what you think, you're never really writing from the heart in these things because you're writing for effect. You're writing for them to figure out who you are or not figure out who you are, <laughs> figure out who you want them to think you are so that they want you in their school. And then the whole thing, all these schools with their names, it's like, I know people who teach at various schools with cool names and not cool names. You know, it's almost as if the the whole thing is to see which sweatshirt you're going to get to wear, right? It's like I see kids with Disney sweatshirts and Harvard sweatshirts, or you know, and it's. I mean, I know it it matters, right? It matters on a, on a whole bunch of different levels. What community you're going to end up spending four years with and what kind of academics they have in programs and whether it's a place where you get to engage with teachers or uh, or not, or just sit in giant lecture halls, whether it's a party school where people care more about the, the football team than the, the, the physics class which isn't bad. It's just what it is. Some people learn a lot by following the football team or being on it. I'm sure that helps them in their lives. But I don't know. I, I look at it at, at these hoops that kids have to jump through for these institutions. And I can't help but remember, as I hear them talk, to remember my own thought of like, what is all this for, really? You know, I understand if you really want to get to go to law school or medical school, then then you know what you sort of want. You're going to go to college and do these things and spend all this money to get the courses you need to then get into the next thing and get this job. But right now, with with the 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 horizon so blurry as to what's going to happen in the future, I mean, I don't know if I were raising a kid now, I'd be raising them towards, you know, not necessarily going to college, but going to, you know, agriculture school or permaculture school, or I don't know, I'd want to, you know, go move to one of those intentional co-op communities in like Asheville, North Carolina, and have my kid learn how to farm and irrigate and, and do actual real stuff because I don't mean to be pessimistic here, but I don't know. The future looks really intense. It looks like it may be different than the present. And you know, a college career that prepares you to be a, an insurance actuary or a mortgage advisor or something like that, that might not be that might not be what to do. You know, I'm feeling like the real purpose of college at this point, I mean, you know, unless you go to a, a, a community college or a trade school to actually just learn a thing that you can go do in the world, which is very rare, college is a, a, a luxury of a sort. It's about the humanities. It's about, you know, discovering and 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 immersing yourself in kind of the, the history of thought and art. It's 
you know, like I used to say in these talks I would give on on labor, you know, education was originally about giving the worker some meaning. It was so the coal miner could return from a, a day in the mines and be able to read a novel and appreciate it or understand government and participate and vote intelligently. But, you know, this this mad race that every 17-year-old in the country seems to be on to to package themselves to brand themselves there are these there are these people i mean i guess i should have known that but there are these people these college counselors out there who charge hundreds of dollars an hour and what they do is they help a 17 year old come up with a compelling narrative a, a brand story for themselves that they can convey through their their combination of courses and extracurricular activities and essays so that there's this story for the audience of whatever, 10 college admissions counselors that you're appealing to. And it seems to me such a, a an awful way for people, especially at that age when they're still assembling their understanding of self to move into that self-sale, self-presentation, self-fashioning mode. And for something that that seems like it matters, right? Whether you're getting into Wesleyan, Oberlin, or the New School, or State, you know, it's like, gah. But it's, 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 it's good, it's good to go through this. It's good to see it, um, not just to experience the or re-experience the trauma vicariously through a kid, but to really use it as an opportunity to see what is this for? You know, what is this for? I'm lucky, right? I made I made choices when I was in college. I I went off road pretty quickly. Sophomore year, I wrote a letter to myself and said, "This is not." You know, I was pre-med at the time, and it was fine. It's great to be a doctor and all, but I knew it wasn't me. And I, I was taking an organic chemistry test, and in the middle of the test, and I was doing fine. I knew how to do it. In the middle of the test, I stopped, and I said, what are you doing? And in and in the second test booklet, I wrote this letter to myself. I still have it somewhere saying, this is Doug, the 19-year-old the writing to future Doug. I'm making a choice for you right now. This is not your path. I am walking out of this test. I ended up getting a B on the test anyway, because it was a curve. And even though I didn't do half of it, I still did that well. That's how hard these things were. Uh, but but I, I said, you're going to do something creative, probably theater, maybe writing, but um, this is not for you. You're going to, you're not going to jump through these hoops anymore. And that was when I finally got off this treadmill that so many people I see are still on where they're looking at something in the future. And they're like, well, once I get that, then I can relax. Right. It's like, as a kid, it's like, well, once I get into college and then, well, once I get into grad school, well, once I get the job, well, once I publish a book, well, once I get a TV show, it's like, no, it's right now. Your life is happening right now. I'm not saying don't work for anything, don't strive for anything, but but it's your your happiness, your contentment, who you are is not contingent on getting this thing, getting into that thing, convincing someone else that you have value. No, you've got it right now. You've got the whole thing, the whole picture with you. You are realized. I W realized. You're all realized. Um, and isn't that easier? So now we can just go on and uh, have a good exhale 
and just enjoy the rest of our lives. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Like many of you, I guess I get both... uh, upset and inspired by people younger than myself. And uh, our guest is really an example of the latter. I was at this ridiculous conference. I've spoken about it before called Unfinished. And it was about this giant decentralized blockchain solution to democracy and the economy and sovereignty and all that crazy stuff. And I was on a panel with you know three brilliant women. And the one to my right is our guest today, Divya Siddharth. She's a uh, political economist and a social technologist at Microsoft. And she's and she's a, a really a co-founder, I think, of the Radical Exchange Foundation, doing really terrific work in in decentralization. But you know, from the perspective of really a, a generation or two further down the line than me, and she is, I, I don't even want to use the word optimistic because it sounds like a bias. She she is hopeful in a grounded way. She is really working on the sustainable solutions for our future digital society and doing it with such heart and hope that um, I just had uh, to bring her to this audience. I speak so cynically so t- sometimes about you know technology and the future of tech and money and isolation and alienation. And boy, is this a breath of fresh air. So uh, here's my conversation with the terrific, wonderful, brilliant Divya Siddharth. So hi, Divya. First, welcome. It's great to see you again. Welcome to being on Team Human. Yeah, it's so wonderful to be here. I've been a fan for a long time. So. Uh, well, I've been a fan of yours for a short time, but you've only been <laughs> alive for a short time, as far as as far as my aged life would say. Originally, we met live in person at the Unfinished Festival, right, which was during a brief respite in COVID, where I guess the mutations allowed for a live meeting, and uh, we both kind of made fun of the event that we were at, which is all about sovereignty and Web3 and a lot of, a lot of words. But I got really interested in, in a few of the uh, uh, trailheads that, that you left me as you, were, as you were speaking. 
And I guess maybe the main thing we should do for people is kind of first fill them in on just kind of, I don't usually do this, but kind of who you are and, and, and what you do. You know, you're a new media or a digital uh, thinker involved in, in issues of, uh, you know, democracy and social justice and restoring the commons and how we use data and AI and all that. But maybe if you could tell us your your story, like you went to college and then came out and you got to be this. Sure. Yeah, I, I sure did go to college <laughs> and come out. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about these questions, I guess, for as long as someone of my age could be thinking about these questions. And it was particularly interesting. So I went to college at Stanford in the heart of Silicon Valley to blame in some ways for a lot of Silicon Valley, if that's a phrasing that I can use. And so... I remember actually driving past the Dropbox office when I showed up to Stanford and it was shocking to me because I used Dropbox and it had never occurred to me that there was like a whole building of people who worked on it. It's sort of, you know, as a 17-year-old who used Dropbox for high school essays, right. I was sort of like, oh, you know, they built this thing and now it's done because it works. And so, you know, why, what what are they all doing over there? Right. There's maybe two people sitting in a room somewhere dealing with service calls, but that's right. about it. It's just a hard drive Seems sitting somewhere. It to work fine, yeah. so what's going on? <laughs> um, and I think that was, I mean, looking back so deeply naive of me, right? Because I was heading to a place where everyone's doing this this thing of maintaining Dropbox type stuff. Uh-huh. I, I think the centrality of computer science and like technology and this culture of innovation and growth to everything else in that space in, at Stanford was really surprising to me because I, I hadn't fully expected that. Perhaps I should have. It is weird, though. I know. I went there. I visited um, Fred Turner, mm. who's a communications theorist there. And I went and I had an hour to walk around. And like right in the middle of campus, there's this one building that's like the Hewlett building. And across from it's like the Packard building. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is where this is ground zero for like computer land. Yeah. No. And you, you just kind of find yourself there and uh, I remember the f- freshman orientation had a session that was sort of like how to end up in tech even if you don't do computer science. My friend was pre-med and there was a session that was sort of like how to work in tech uh, even if you're a pre-med. And that was kind of the attitude. And I think it was really interesting because I was there really as the quote-unquote tech lash was just starting. So I think I got to see the backlash against this, right? The The coming to... God moment of being like, whoa, what are we all doing? What are all these smart people doing? Just, uh, you know, spending all their time on technology and ad clicks and things like this. And I ended up teaching a class called CS Plus Social Good along with a really wonderful team around technology for social impact before, you know, these kinds of questions were just new at Stanford, not new in the world. Activists had been pushing for this for decades, you know, as long as there had been technology. But I think being a part of that energy right at that time when folks were suddenly thinking like, oh, maybe Facebook isn't the best thing that's ever happened to the world. Like what's going on there? And so that was really fascinating to me and got to work with some really wonderful people, the Digital Civil Society Lab there and other folks around really thinking about the systemic question here. Because I think even though there was an appetite for kind of let's take tech and apply it to social impact problems, like nonprofits should use technology and governments should use technology. And that's true. That's one step of tech for social impact. But really, the broader question, which you know, I think you obviously tackle and have for a long time, is what are the systemic things that are happening here? Like, what is technology as an ecosystem doing? Not just let's take it and use it for good things, but you know, how is it shaping us? How is it being shaped? Who's doing the shaping? Who's just living under it? Like those kinds of questions were, you know, very formative for me and and asking at that time. And 
just a very interesting and generative and fundamentally strange place to be doing that. And, you know, graduated and got as far away as possible, I think, uh, moved to India right after graduating college and, and worked as a research fellow there on social movements and tech and kind of answering these questions from a very different perspective. I sort of had all these big ideas and questions about the world and had lived in California my whole life, you know, so what do I know? Like, I mean, not that I know so much now, but... Well, to a lot of Californians, <laughs> they would say, that's all you need to know, right? But uh, yeah. So thought I should move to the world's largest democracy. Like this incredible, fascinating, I love India so much. I mean, part of it was just selfish. I wanted mm. to live there, but, um, you know, and really see how are these questions being negotiated in a space that technology, the, the, the kind of avenue of technology growth was totally different. The way society is structured is totally different. And I think India is very inspirational to me in many ways in that like the decolonial struggles were so recently, 1947, and yet has set up this incredible democracy, yeah. very worried about what's going on now, concerns abound, but still, you know, find it to be this incredible and, and wonderful place. And so wanted to think about these things there, spent a couple years working with politicians and activists, looking at the large-scale digital programs that they have, which, you know, talk about binaries, like both very surveillant and have been very useful for some people. So thinking about what tech means in that context and then coming back to the U.S. during pandemic time. And then I did some pandemic COVID policy, which <sighs> I had never deeply interacted with the U.S. policy. You know we all have thoughts on U.S. policy. I had a lot of thoughts. Yeah, it's in the basement of some big Capitol building, <laughs> yeah. right? I was like, the right policy. I have opinions <laughs> on U.S. policy, but hadn't been a, hadn't seen how the sausage gets made. Like, didn't know how it all worked. And I think, yeah, probably the pandemic was not a good time in some sense because, you know, I remember we had this meeting with like FEMA fairly early on. This group of folks, led by Daniel Allen, others at the Harvard Safra Center for Ethics really incredible, inspiring group of people that I was very honored to support and work with. And, you know, they kind of started the meeting being like, so what do you think we should do? Well, they're used to that. They're used to like getting lobbyists who come in and tell them, you know, but these weren't lobbyist people. These were people who actually wanted to make things better. It was sort of like, you should tell me what to do. Aren't you the organization in Aren't charge? Aren't you the expert? Right. I mean, we, I, and this is credit to everyone else on this effort. Like, I think you know, came up with an extremely thorough COVID combating plan by like mid-April. Uh, testing, tracing, supported isolation, put out this roadmap. Daniel built this incredible coalition. And then we just wait. Like, And it was implemented? No. And it was implemented? <laughs> and then COVID, and, and COVID is fixed? Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and then just watched it not happen for five months, you know? And you know, on, on the other hand, like worked with incredible community groups that were doing community-based contact tracing and like all of these academics that wanted to help and these labs that were like, we'll process tests for free and this incredible grounds, you know, the mutual aid organizations and just seeing this groundswell of support and how resilient so many communities are, but also the deep frustration and, and difficulty of like mm. interacting with an establishment that was just incapable or not willing to do what you know, it was quite obvious to most people that needed to be like, it wasn't, I spoke to a bunch of reporters in that time, because we published this piece on how much testing needed to be done. And it was kind of just like, they would be like, so how did you figure out, you know, the numbers for this? And it's just like, well, much more than we're doing now is basically all that's necessary. <laughs> God, no, I remember, it's funny, I, I remember um, with Dana Boyd, when she left 
Berkeley. She got scooped up right away by Microsoft to do policy research and sort of digital and kids and this and that. And I remember speaking to her shortly after she got that gig, and she was like, well, the weird thing is I'll be sitting at my computer writing down policy ideas, and then they get like copied and pasted into policy. <laughs> you know, that it's like, and she was like, I didn't know who wrote policy before, but it's me. It's us. It's just <laughs> people just do it. It's kind of odd. So, so Microsoft then found you and said, please come help us. So Microsoft, to its credit, actually participated a lot, I think, in COVID response and sort of put a bunch of folks on it in various ways. The organizational structure of Microsoft, and I'm you know, now in the office of the CTO, which is an incredible uh, group of folks, is still very it's it's labyrinthine. I mean, it's like hundreds of thousands of people or like more than 100,000 people. And so I can't even exactly tell you where all the folks who came to this effort came from, from within Microsoft. But, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of Microsoft folks were just involved in COVID response and like spent, you know, built some of the back end for some of the mapping stuff and were doing visualization and Microsoft Research was on it and folks from the office of the CTO were on it. And so I just started working with them through this and then, you know, ended up joining the team there. And it was sort of in line with some of the other work that I was doing on this, uh, at, in India before I came around data cooperatives and data unions. You know, mm -hmm. the office of the CTO was looking at this thing called data dignity. Like, can we fund people for their data contributions to large platforms that they don't get paid for at all? I love a word like dignity, but I like it so much better than like sovereignty. You know, as a as a guiding principle, human dignity just so much wider and deeper, as a, as a thing. Yeah. So then, but when Microsoft is doing this, and I kind of have to get my 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 Gen X cynic out of the way here. Like, you know, if you go to the prison industrial complex and you see the them trying to influence uh, marijuana regulation, they're like, you, when you look at the money going into the the fight against marijuana or cannabis legalization, it comes from the prison lobby, right? Because mm -hmm. they want people to go to jail for it. It always looks so transparent. Or you see Google always arguing for open this and open that because then you're open to being advertised to by Google's servers. And Microsoft, it sounds like it's almost too big or too complicated for everyone who's writing or working or researching for Microsoft to be thinking in the back of their heads, well, how does this help windows or you know i mean do you it's is it is it tied into that or is it more tied into it it feels not not to be uh, to to play love in for microsoft but it feels like microsoft was kind of went through so much on the policy and the china and then the monopoly stuff they went through that that now their government efforts seem a little bit in some ways more pure or or more practically minded than sales minded for me, you know, I joined Microsoft in the office of the CTO and and hadn't I didn't really self-identify as like a person who would join a big corporation mm -hmm. and like work on policy and strategy there. And what I found before I joined was that the folks I was working with on COVID policy were like so you know, brilliant, but also well-meaning and earnest in that well-meaningness that it it felt like a place that change could be made. And, you know, the digital ecosystem is set by large tech companies. And I think change often doesn't happen without the architecture behind it. And so that's part of it. But I also do a lot of external work with the Radical Exchange Foundation, with the Ostrom Workshop, because I think both, both are necessary, right? Like, I don't think all of it can come from within Microsoft. But what I was saying is that I, I really found that 
I saw corporations as this profit maximizing machine, mm -hmm. which maybe they wish they could be. I mean, I'm not foreclosing that possibility, but the, they're not because it's very hard to maximize profit with a very large company. Like that's just not the only incentive system at play when a lot of human beings are working on very complicated stuff in like large, large, large teams, right? There's so many incentives at play. You want the folks on your team, you know, you want to support them. You want to build something cool. You want to hit your KPIs. You want to do long-term thinking. You want PR, like you want, you know, you want to keep the ecosystem stable so that you can keep going in it. You want to do certain policy things. Like it's not this strict bottom line thinking that I just associated with companies in my head before I did this work. And so I think there are so many different ways that, you know, folks at Microsoft, because it's made up of people, think about the tech ecosystem, you know, in very different manners. And I don't agree with all of them, but that's because everyone thinks about it differently. And so, you know, particularly in terms of this kind of work, and I think I have a pretty clear, like, normative worldview in terms of what I want to see happen, you know, like more cooperative structures, more shared ownership, like, these kinds of distribution and equity concerns, et cetera, you know, quite clear on some of those things. But a lot of that does fit into what a company like Microsoft might want. Not all of it does. And then Microsoft wants many things. But I think I found just like a, a fairly generative space for having these conversations. And then I, I would say Microsoft Research is also a really wonderful kind of organization that does act somewhat independently from Microsoft and like in a way, in an academic adjacent way, you know, where people are like really right. just exploring these questions. They do like Bell Labs kind of good old fashioned Xerox Park weirdness, maybe. Yeah. There's <laughs> different stuff. It's weird though, you know, because I mean, in some ways I'm just a pedestrian, right? I mean, I think deeply about stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm normal in what I'm exposed to. And in my world, we don't hear about Microsoft so much. It's like, I see lots of Google and I got all this Apple stuff and I, I hear about Facebook and Twitter and and Elon Musk and it's like Windows. It's like I I wouldn't even know if I because I don't have a job job. It's like Windows is still around, right? <laughs> There's Windows, right? There's Microsoft is there, right? Making all their stuff. They're still a big company making stuff. Stuff yeah. is being. It's the Dropbox effect. <laughs> it just works, and so you don't think about the people. Who you don't. Work. It's just back there, right? But I'm sure all the cash registers and swiping systems and all that. You know, when they finally go down, you see a little some Microsoft the blue screen. You know, I saw it at yeah, a exactly. subway station recently in New York, and I was like, "This runs on Windows." <laughs> it runs on Windows. Right. It was on Windows 95. Is what it runs on. That's always the scary part. You find out, you know, the space station's running on like Windows 3.1 or something with 8088 chips, and because they were stable, there or COBOL or something in there. God bless COBOL. But so you're not a, like a computer scientist, or are you? Can you code and write stuff if you if you had to on a desert island? Yeah. Well, actually, the desert island question is so interesting <laughs> because I have been doing a bunch of work on. AI and kind of the the uselessness of human parity metrics. Like, why do we want AI that can do what humans can do? We want AI or technology that can make what humans do better. That's a totally different set of metrics, right? Yeah. Um, but the desert island question comes up because it's kind of like, it is useless to do what a human can do in most contexts. Like what you would want on a desert island is not a technology that can do what you can do or like code, right? right. You want like a technology <laughs> that can support you in other ways. Anyway, um, right. but yes, I could in my desert island with a computer code if I yeah. needed to. Like I, I did CS um, at Stanford, but 
I guess I, I appreciate it for giving me a sense of both the opportunities and challenges of like what the actual tech can do, right? Because there's so much conversation, both like extremely excited about what technology can bring to us, but also I think even some critique overplays the hand of technology where it's like this incredibly powerful force that can fully shape our world. And really it's a, a tool and a tool that's used within these systems that have perverse structures and incentives or have various reasons that tools are used in certain ways by certain powerful groups. But still, you know, it's not an agentic force in and of itself. And I think right. having that core of technology gives me that, but it's definitely coding is not what I do day to day. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing I love about computer science is it's almost a sort of microcosmic or, or representative effects. Like if it weren't for computers and the way it deals with information and property and IP and accelerates all those things, I probably never would have started thinking about the commons. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I, I think, and, and it's the crazy way to have come around around it. But when I think about, oh, we've got to treat water as a commons or the air as a commons. I think about it because of the way a amount of thinking I've ended up doing about how should we regulate IP and ownership of things and resources and open source. You know what I mean? So it kind of brings us full circle to great medieval uh, <laughs> uh, economic models that they had for how to manage resources. But you think a lot about about sort of uh, uh, what's loosely called the democratization of AI and data. But a, a lot of what you've come to is sort of uh, sort of data commons and commons-based solutions as well, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think what, what I like about looking at emerging technology is that it does exactly that. It opens up questions that, you know, we could have and should have been asking ourselves anyway. But now we have a concrete reason and a way to visualize it, like for AI, I think there's this question of like vast resource use, for example, like so much data and compute and money goes into training AI systems. And that makes us think about the concentration of resources and, and of power and of energy and like all of those kinds of things that maybe we could have and should have been thinking about anyway. And then on the other hand, it also talks about automation and labor. And now it brings us to this conversation about like good jobs and what what is the hours of a day that most people have, like what is it spent on and what does it mean to automate away certain tasks? And why is it the case that we see automation in some ways as dystopian when we want to be freeing people up to do better things? And like, what is it about our structure that makes these things concerning? And, you know, right. so it opens up right. these questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I got all the way around to that question of well, what's a job for? You know, when everyone was so worried about having their robots automate their jobs, it was like, why do you want a job? You know, oh, you want a job because you want money. I got that. You want money. But, but just, just to separate that, you want money, right? But do you want a job? Do you want to work? You want to provide for yeah. Oh, that's okay. You could work. Do you want to work? What do you want to do? But you want a job. You know, and then it's like once you break that open, it's like, oh my God, we've accepted these these words and these roles as as given circumstances of you know of human society when they don't necessarily have to be. Exactly. And I think that that labor question is so interesting, right? Because I think people do want to work. And in fact, it's very clear that there is a huge amount of work happening, whether it's Minecraft servers or Wikipedia <laughs> or, yeah. you know, the insane work of moderating a Reddit forum like that is hard to do, you know, and yet folks do it because we love to contribute and like create things. And, you know, it really brings up these questions of, 
how can we enable all of that creation to happen without needing some of the very tedious tasks that we don't want to be doing and creating that balance between those things. And I think there's also an issue on the other side, right? Like I find UBI discourse very interesting because on one hand, I'm very supportive of like a universal basic services model. Like many, many things should be decommodified and accessible to people. However, you hear UBI discourse coming from like folks who run really large tech companies or people, you know, know. which is very much like, let's get rid of the state and then just have private organizations fund UBI. Like, so the ways that this discourse manifests are, are very fascinating. And I think similarly on the blockchain tech side, which I also look at, there are these questions around like, ownership and monopoly and who gets credit for things that, again, we could be asking either way, but this new emerging technology has made a lot more people think about, like, what does it mean that all of our data gets sucked into certain platforms? Or like, what does it mean that we don't have ways to collectively organize very easily with technology? As with AI, I don't, I'm not sure that all of the applications of that tech answer these questions in a satisfactory way, but they open them up. And then we finally have the societal like foundation to talk about them and to iterate on it and to like create something new. Right. And then it's, it, and it should be encouraging um, to those of us listening to you to think, oh, Microsoft is paying for someone who's thinking like this. Because then it's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, so, so you can go in the belly of the so-called beast if the, if the beast is big enough, I guess. And and engage, you know, and engage with the real, with the real true questions. But part of also part of the way you're fueling this inquiry is by spending your time not in the, uh, you know, Microsoft stock cafeteria, right? They probably have a cafeteria that's built all around their stock symbol, just looking at the number, right? Um, but you know <laughs> what I mean? Not, not just sitting talking about the share value of, of Microsoft, but you're spending your time out with people in, in verses. <laughs> so verses, which is a really fun, fun thing that, that I would almost describe it as a way of modeling alternate simultaneous realities as an exercise in the fact that there's a lot of different things going on here that should be playing with each other rather than dominating each other. That's so good. I should write it down so that we, <laughs> so that we can use it. It's it's a fun a, a fun fun thing. So it's it's one of its one of its manifestations is to help us stop thinking about the metaverse as this single metaverse thing outside the universe, but but to start talking about it as the pluriverse, mm-hmm. which I really like as a word, pluriverse, like plural. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, it's very yes and, you know? <laughs> exactly. I think, so Versus is this uh, collective of artists and researchers and others. Um, I like that. Artists, researchers, and others. The three kinds of people. Uh, and many, many other types that I can't come up with right now. Philosophers. And uh, we've recently been thinking about this concept of the pluriverse, partly because I think, you know, there's a lot of things to be against in the current technology ecosystem and the sort of typical web three paradigm is one that's like, okay, web one was open and wonderful. Web two became these like huge dominant monopoly platforms. And so web three will again be open and wonderful. And there's something to really love about this narrative. But, you know, I think the reality is that web one itself was 
open in some ways and closed in others. It was accessible to elite institutions. It was like, you know, quite US centric mm -hmm. in many ways. Web two started with its own dreams of democratization, right? There were like its own open protocols and this yep. idea that open communication and blogs and this one's gonna be yep. this huge flowering of decentralized activity. So it wasn't like this just walled no. garden thing. Yeah, web two <laughs> is like WordPress is web two where anybody can make their own website easily. I mean, there were a lot of great on-ramps to publishing yeah. that happened in web two, yeah. And it really did democratize communication in many ways, but it also gave us these monopolistic platforms that have huge downsides, surveillance, advertising, yeah. like extractive gig work platforms. But, you know, that wasn't what people necessarily went in for. It's just our economic and social structures pushed what was also a, a, an openness play right into this. And so I think seeing that cycle from, you know, my perspective or our perspective, it's like, how do we prevent that from happening again? Because it's it's much easier to say like, okay, things were good and then they were bad and now they'll be good again. But yeah. reality is cyclical. And so how is it that, you know, whatever is next? And I don't believe in like strict phases. I think it's really yeah. quite evolutionary and phases kind of come after and people put them back. But, um, you know, how do we prevent this from happening again? And I think this- Wow, how do we stay one step ahead of capitalism is the other way of yeah. asking it. But <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And- you know, the pluriverse concept is really rooted in decolonial theory. It's the, the idea of a pluriverse was this Zapatista concept and they're this, you know, autonomous indigenous group in Mexico. And it means a world in which many worlds may fit. And like folks like Arturo Escobar and Walter Mingalo and many others kind of adapted this to this concept of post-development. And it, it was a mm. response to like the neoliberal, you know, late 1900s, where really the concern was on like Western universality and like, even more than saying one way of life is good and one way of life is bad, it's we shouldn't all have to live the same way and live under the same social structures and the same kind of right. like modes of commerce and interaction. And in fact, humanity has normally lived in so many different ways at the same time. And I love like David Graeber's work, you know, in yeah. terms of articulating this. And so... And you know, and just... just Historically, though, for just so people know, I mean, the Zapatistas were inspirational to the early, early internet thinking to guys like Ricardo Dominguez, who started Thing.net, um, was all based in this sort of in that decentralized, distributed uh, uh, breaking of, of, of traditional polarities and boundaries. Um, early queer theory and gender theory, again, mm -hmm. came from those same sensibilities. It's like um, so much came out of what was a farm workers political economic liberation movement in Mexico. So, I mean, when you think about where does the sort of the, the, the highest minded, weirdest thought, if you're suspecting that we're translating Baudrillard or Foucault for you here, <laughs> we are not, right? This is as of the people, as campesino, as ideas get. You know, it it's an execution thing. It's like we can yes. have these ideals all we want, but the Zabatistas in Chiapas like run a society this way, right? And yeah. that is so inspirational, even for uh, those of us who are thinking about it like in a more theoretical sense. It's just the fact that you can go and see. And I feel similarly about like worker co-ops and the cooperative principles and things like this, where it's not just the idea, like the normative good that democracy is great or like yeah. we should all work together. It's really the execution of that. It's seeing it happen in practice. Yeah. And that's why I keep getting pulled to like, platform co-ops and data co-ops and like even DAOs as cooperative organizations and however we can bring back and really execute on that ethos and make sure our technology uh, goes in that direction. Um, 
you know, that's something you can build in. Like some technology is better for a cooperative pursuit than others are. You know, it's not just happenstance. But having witnessed, say, the real world seed co-ops of India, right? The mm -hmm. women's seed co-ops where they're sharing seeds and teaching diversity to each other. Having witnessed that, do you, uh, sometimes I think that's it. And a DAO will never do that. In other words, sometimes I wonder if the DAO is a... a you know, this is, we're talking about, you know, decentralized networks and Web3 and using a blockchain to blah, 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 blah. Are we just fooling ourselves? Is, is it is it easier than this? Does it, or does it need to happen on some global level? And that's why we need to do it on a blockchain with strangers or? I would definitely not say we need to do it on a blockchain. I think what's <laughs> interesting to me about DAOs and the interest in them is it's another inroad to this way of thinking, right? It brings mm -hmm. in a bunch of folks who, like I've spoken to people who came to the idea of co-ops, like really had never thought about co-ops until they joined a DAO. And maybe they joined it because they wanted a different job or love cryptocurrency. Right. But So it trickles down from there to reality, right? Yeah. And yeah. any way that these inroads can happen, like maybe it's data cooperatives, maybe it's a concern about where all your data is going and like a want to protect that and have an intermediary organization. Maybe it's platform cooperatives, like understanding how exploitative gig work platforms are and then bending together. Like rederiving cooperation, I think is huh. a very human thing to do. And I'm very happy wherever it, wherever it occurs to right. go there and say like, yes, and now let's learn for the past, right? And that's where this pluriverse concept comes from, where we, we try to take this thing that's very rooted in decolonial theory and instead of, you know, really careful not to co-opt it, but to say, what if we think about this in the digital context? Like, what does it mean to have a world in which many worlds may fit? That's no longer like a meta Facebook world, but it's also no longer in any other monopoly world. And it's in fact a world right. that allows many different ways of being. And if some of those are like centralized platforms, then that's okay as long as the other options are also allowed to flourish and create right. this vibrant ecosystem. And there's choice, right? And there's agency and there's voice and all of these kinds of things. Right. And you don't need a, a quantum physics multiverse theory to understand a multiplicity of, of human expressions existing simultaneously and cooperatively. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, the, the tough thing, and I think this does come up in conversations about pluralism, and like I would identify as a pluralist, but pluralism has to have constraints, right? Like we have seen time and again yeah. that otherwise pluralism and like an equal excitement about all things or enabling of all things can produce that which destroys it. Like this is what happens in democracies where like hate speech is allowed to flourish right. or something like this. Are anti-pluralists allowed in our pluralist world? <laughs> exactly, right? And that comes up in a question of something like the pluriverse. Like what, you know, what is not in the pluriverse? Is it anything? And I think that we, my best answer to this question is like a process-oriented question where if you build something that's very robust, that has these processes of democratic, you know, accountability and things like this, then we will have a process to deal with that when the question eventually arises, which it will and a secondary process to make our process better if it needs to become more robust, which it also might. And this is the ideal way that a state would work, for example, right? Like the U.S. was set up in a certain way, and there are many flaws with it. But the point is that it should be able to evolve. And I think one of our major <laughs> issues is that, like, we've never, we, we can't amend the, you know, like, things yeah. are not allowed to shift anymore. And that fossilization is 
the death knell of a society. Whereas like, yeah. no matter where you start, if you are able to improve and create robust processes and bring people in, then that's a much better, you know, you're adaptive. You're, you're a species that can adapt instead of a species that's just going to like wither away. Right. And a pluriverse is intrinsically adaptive, right? If it, mm-hmm. As long as it's not, bor- it's not borgifying everything that touches it, it's, it's <laughs> opening to, you know what I mean? It's, it's changing along with everything it touches. And, and the first, it's, it's interesting, the first artifact, I guess, of the pluriverse is a, uh, an updating of uh, John Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace that you're calling the Declaration of Interdependence of Cyberspace, which is a, just a beautiful idea. I was wondering if you knew that I'd seen, I had to go look it up. Did you know that in like 2013, that a guy on Computer World, uh, the magazine, wrote a declaration of interdependence of cyberspace? Yeah. They uh, so did. I yeah. have to say, I can't It was take a credit. funny one, though. Yeah. It was dark. This one, theirs is very different. Theirs is very different from yours. Their declaration of interdependence of cyberspace was like libertarian. It was a, it was a satire. Libertarians of the virtual world, you gray-bearded detractors of government and sovereignty. We too come from cyberspace. On behalf of the future, we ask you of the past to leave us alone. Your declaration of independence rings false and your stale principles are a threat to progress. And he just basically deconstructs, <laughs> you know, Barlow's declaration of, of cyberspace, which is true, it was as kind of libertarian, anti-government, and, and unbalanced. It was not a yes Very and much, document. Right? Yeah. And yeah. What, what interests me about like certain kinds of libertarianism is that, you know, the idea is freedom from obligation, like we don't owe each other much and things like this, but the obligation to leave someone alone is actually itself like asking for a huge amount, right? In a society where we all have to coexist. And so it just, right. it, it is amusing to me that it's like, well, all you have to do is let me do what I want. And it's, it, which is going to affect you by design because we are neighbors. Like, yeah. that's a lot to ask, you know? So right, especially I, <laughs> if you're the one who's got 140,000 acres of land in Wyoming yeah. and all this steer, you know, <laughs> okay, I got mine, leave me alone. The <laughs> exactly. game is over. <laughs> and yeah, the, the Declaration of Interdependence, I actually I actually joined Versus after that because I had written this piece in Noema on autonomy and interdependence that was just like organically had so many similar themes that I was so excited to find this collective mm-hmm. but that piece kind of came from this idea of like why are our technologies trying to get rid of humanity so bad you know like why is it the yeah. case that we want to replace humans or replace trust or like all of these different kinds of things when our greatest successes and, and joys come from embracing what's human and of course making it better like of course we want to make it better it's not the case that we've already invented everything we can invent to make our lives better because if that were the case the world would be you know a much more equitable and prosperous place but like why is it that we're trying to get rid of people in the same way it's like a, a desire for getting rid of obligation when in fact it is those interdependent obligations and what we owe each other that makes society function yeah i mean that's what the the next book i i I just finished it. It's about this survival of the richest book, you know, based on my meeting with these billionaires who wanted to know how to uh, how to fortify their bunkers. And what I realized <laughs> is that their their bunkers, it's not a nightmare scenario for them. It's a wish fulfillment. It's it's the mm. realization of their original media lab, you know, dream of having a, a fully serviced virtual bubble that they could live in and not worry about, you know, nature and women and weirdness. <laughs> you know what I mean? And all that stuff. Yeah. It's like, oh, nice 
nice, dry, safe, perfect world where an algorithm anticipates my every need in the way my mother couldn't, right? You know, and these poor guys, you know, and they have sovereignty in there too, of course. They have absolute sovereignty in their virtual bubble. But uh, it, it, it all comes from that same, I mean, that same five or 600-year-old urge, you know, to kind of repress and control nature, to itemize and quantify and make it all uh, objectified and out there and, you know, and not squishy and, inter. you know, the interdependency is itself almost the nightmare for them, I think. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, you mean I need, I need someone that makes me vulnerable and Everything's Interdependency temporary. is dependency, right? And I think yeah. that can be. But it's interesting because I think most people are so dependent and are aware of their dependence on their communities and their families and their friends and their favorite cafe and whatever it is that it's not a terrifying thing for society at large. It's only a terrifying... I think Silicon Valley has such a... In some ways, like a very narrow intellectual set of precepts that everyone's pulling from like the same kind of five books and the same like three concepts um and one of them is like this idea of like mastery over your surroundings and like ma- you know master over your life you should live a very like perfectly organized like productive life and then you should master your company and then you should master your surroundings and like really be on it, this this that that sovereignty thing which comes from like a, a ruling concept right and i think instead right. meanwhile most of the world doesn't work that way and actually succeeds and builds transformations totally different from this and there is something to be learned in from like self-sovereignty there's something to be learned about like being in control of yourself and supporting others in that way but it's just been warped into this deeply individualistic and like so anti-human mode of thinking and needs to be brought back into like well what is it all for well it's all for you know creating a better society yeah i mean and of course the self-sovereignty thing it dovetails so well with a kind of a walking dead you know (laughs) scenario where there'll be some requirement of individual survival as if that's possible as if I guess I don't know and there's so many movies that are out there trying to make us believe that yeah if you build the right bunker the right self-sufficient thing you know these are all just other fantasies I mean I'm Redwood what is that place Redwood Hills that those that place near near Palo Alto there's that mm, rich Redwood neighborhood City. yeah yeah Redwood <laughs> City I drove through there and saw that every house has like its own swimming pool and its own you know vivarium and biosphere and its own wall. <laughs> yeah its own wall and guard dogs and guard <laughs> robots or whatever they have there now and I'm like okay is that fun is that <laughs> I guess if you got enough friends living there with you, but ah, uh, uh, you know, all the Silicon Valley guys, they get, you know, you see them from the helicopters, those compounds they build with their billions or the, you know, Jeff Bezos has a yacht that has a yacht that services his yacht because oh the sails are so big on his yacht that you can't land a helicopter on his yacht. So he has an, a companion yacht that goes along with his yacht. <laughs> That's got the, you know, services and stuff. It reads like an onion headline. (laughs) It does, but it's real. It's real. But yeah, but it's, it's the dream of, of independence, you know, which is, which is, 
it's an important state for the child, you know, between like three and seven years old when they realize they're apart from the mother <laughs> and they develop, you know, sense of who they are. But then they go through adolescence and then you want to find other people again. You know, a different urge takes over, which is to, to unite with others. But I feel like it just didn't didn't kick in with a lot of these folks. And now we live in a in a in a digital landscape that's really uh, uh, constructed on those faulty principles. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it is truly different if it weren't having such an outsized effect on the world. Like I can't, and, and like probably I'm not qualified to psychoanalyze what goes into platforms, but I can certainly see their material effects. And those material effects are like concentrating and exploitative in many ways. And they also are just not reflective of the broader society. And I think this idea of autonomy is just a really interesting one to me because speaking of the Zapatistas, I mean, an autonomous community, something that, you know, a group that cares about autonomy in this such a different way from when we talk about like autonomous technologies or like autonomy for individuals or like the libertarian idea of autonomy because it's a deeply interdependent idea, but it's still about self-determination. I mean, the fundamental concept that a person in a community should be able to decide how they live in the world and what happens to them, that's a good idea. You know, like that is important. And yet warping it to be like, I, one person gets to decide that for so many other people and that person wants to have autonomy. And it's like an autonomy of, I get to decide what, how other people live. And that's what makes me feel like I have autonomy. Well, that's incorrect, right? It's like taking a good and pure idea of self-determination and just warping it to say like, I don't feel self-determination or you know, what I deserve is to determine the fate of others, which is a completely different idea. And I yeah. think that's what has happened with a lot of digital technology where what you want is to influence the way the world works, but you couch it in this concept of like individual determination, which isn't the case at all. And I wonder what's the, what's the path to heal ourselves of this? You know, I I might just have low tolerance for these things, but it's like even on the, you know, the team human, we have a discord server for, you know, our, our supporting members. And there's this conversation in there about governance and it's mm -hmm. about how do we govern our own discord server, mm -hmm. right? Who gets to pick when there's a new topic and what's this and that. And, and there's really smart people who like do like big blockchain governance and liquid democracy projects all involved in this conversation. And it's like, gah, I feel like the conversation around governance structures can get so advanced, convoluted would be the not nice word for it, but so involved that it's like, oh, can't we just hang out nicely together? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It feels so – I mean, how do we ground all of these ideas in just good, simple getting alongness? Yeah, what was the, the – there's an Oscar <laughs> Wilde quote that's like, I love socialism except for all the meetings or something like this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a very fair point, right? There's a paper that I love called Too Much Democracy in All the Wrong Places. It's about like participatory local governance, but that concept I think about a lot, like – is it the case that we have too much democracy sometimes in all the wrong places where we're over-determining governance of like small communities and yet have so little agency in like the larger functioning of the right. society in which we live? But it makes sense because what we have access to is our smaller communities. And, you know, on the governance side, I'm definitely a big sociocracy fan in terms of like identifying areas of expertise or like areas that people want to work in and then small dictators within areas. Like right. I think that has succeeded. But, you know, philosophically, 
it's a very important question. When do you, because when do people want to engage? And this is something that comes up with data cooperatives a lot because there were original ideas that were like, well, you can decide wherever your data goes and you'll be constantly making these decisions. And it's like, no one wants that. I would hate to be voting on like who gets to see my data every hour of every day. And so then what do you do, right? Well, because you want the agency and the current system isn't working, but the direct democracy system right. is also not a good idea. So I'll proxy to you. I'll proxy all my data <laughs> decisions to you, okay? I'm in. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. I'll protect your data with my life. Don't worry. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's this idea of accountable intermediaries, which is what humans have been coming back to for years and, and decades and millennia, right? Like, who do you trust? And then how do you hold that person accountable in a reasonable way? And that's kind of how right. unions came up. Like, data cooperatives being inspired by unions in many ways. Like it's like you're atomized, you can't make these decisions, but you also don't want to every day be negotiating what your pay should be and what the hours should be. Well, can you have a representative that represents you? And I think new mechanisms for accountability are what's really exciting to me because what that where that relationship breaks down is like how accountable are those people to you in the end? And can we make them more accountable? And I think that's kind of the frontier for governance is how much more accountability can we have for folks that have to represent us because representation is crucial. Like we, we don't want to be making all of these decisions ourselves. And actually we want to take advantage of the brilliance of all the people that we love and work with and have them make some decisions, right? Like I trust um, that you will make some of my decisions for me and that will be wonderful for me because I get to do other things and feel very good about the decisions. And so how do we make sure that we have all the right democracy in all the right places. It's kind of sometimes how I think about the work that I want to do. Yeah. I mean, I heard you talking, you, you observed the uh, sunflower movement, didn't you? Not live, I guess, but, but, uh, <laughs> so the radical exchange foundation that I work with closely, uh, has Audrey Tong, um, who's a digital minister of Taiwan is on the board. And like, we work oh, wow. closely with the incredible civic hacking kind of collective determination tech that's being built there. Right. So Taiwan, in an almost extinction rebellion style movement, the, the, the people managed to fight for and implement a series of, and correct me where I'm wrong, kind of a, a, a series of citizens councils that the government has to listen to. Essentially, yes. There's like tech-involved democratic deliberation through this tool called Polis. And then there's also offline facilitated deliberation. And yeah, there are mechanisms such that policymakers, if something gets a certain number of votes or a certain measure of support, they have to they have to basically take that bill and vote on it. And so there is that accountability mechanism. And I think that's what you know, when you see the way Taiwan responded to COVID, for example, it comes, you can only have a response like that with like the trust of people to the state and this trust, as as Audrey says, of state to its people, right? Like the, it should be a two-way transparency and that both of those are missing in like states like the US where our response has failed. And it's partly because we haven't built in those accountability tools and there's no understanding. Uh, there's a Princeton study that came out recently that was like um, the popular opinion of, of Americans has like marginal effect on what policy gets uh, passed, like basically looking at how popular something is and then whether the bill gets passed in Congress, there's like some minimal correlation in the past few decades. Right. And it's people feel that. Yeah, but it's also how popular something is and how willing people are to vote for the representatives who want that thing themselves or to educate themselves as to, oh, I want a candidate such and such doesn't, but I'm voting for them anyway. And it's like, okay, so you're not, we're not even voting for what we want anymore. Yeah, it's, I think it's truly just a, 
it's an unaccountable system, but it's not a system incapable of accountability. And so that is what is exciting to me about Taiwan, because the other thing about Taiwan is that it, it's, it wasn't always like this. Like sometimes I speak about Taiwan to folks and they're kind of like, ah, but, you know, in a thinly veiled, somewhat racist sense, like it's it's homogenous over there. You know, people all want the same stuff. So it's not, and it's oh, a small Oh, because they're all country. Taiwanese, right? It's so they're not all the like same. Um, right, but and, the actual genetic, racial, and religious makeup of Taiwan, I mean, it it's may super not diverse. look to, it yeah, it may not look to, <laughs> <tensions. laughs> There's like real waves of immigration that led to long scale ethnic tensions. And there's there it wasn't always high trust in government. China's like ramming them with disinformation constant. Like it's not this place that was just destined to have amazing democracy. It's something that folks work for and the structures work towards. Right. And that in a sense gives me hope because it's like a place that doesn't work right now. Like the U.S. can also get there. Yeah. But I would argue part of the reason why Taiwan even as a government and as a people, we're open to developing a resilient form of self-government and self-rule is that there's an imminent threat of Mm -hmm. absorption by China that doesn't even recognize their national sovereignty, right? You mentioned you mentioned Taiwan as a nation, and you like can't be in the Olympics in China. It's like <laughs> they won't let you in the country. So, you know, there's an urgency to it, and I wonder. I mean, maybe climate or something else will create the urgency in America for us to go. Oh, um, let's participate in democracy in a different way. But I'm. It's really hard. This is a big place, and I just feel like. We're so far off course right now. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Estonia, which I think is another great example of democracy, digital democracy, is like similarly in some ways in the shadow of like Russia, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's true that those antagonisms do create space for these things to, you know, people to really understand the value. But I do think in the U.S. and, you know, I, I think of the U.S. and India as like the countries that I know the best and also I'm probably most personally invested in. And there is constant just pressure from folks, there's a desire for democracy, right? Like there's a desire for self-determination and when necessary, like mutual aid networks spring up and people create democratic spaces for themselves. And I think that's gotten in some ways harder, particularly in the US. I mean, the, the famous kind of like bowling alone thesis of like civic organizations falling to the wayside, but it's, there is space for that. And I think there is a desire for that. And there's so much energy pushing towards it. The protests last year, just like this upswelling of people do want to show up. And if there are avenues for it created, I think there's that energy that's latent and possible. And so that's one of the things that gives me hope. And I'm lucky because I get to spend a lot of time with people who are building alternatives, right? I get to, you know, in India, I worked with activists and cooperatives and like people I, I have been doing this work for some years and I was working with folks who, had, who were doing it for decades, like who never uh, lost sight of what they were going for. And that energy I see here as well. Like when I, when I work with people who are trying to like build out new unions or are trying to like democratize their legislatures, like, you know, many of whom can face consistent setbacks. And I think it's our duty to make those setbacks less, like not to romanticize tragedy or anything like this, but there is that energy and there's so much of that work happening that I I feel there is always hope in terms of like creating openings for it. It's good for me to hear this all because um, I spend a lot of time just feeling guilty for what 
my generation ended up leaving your generation with. <laughs> but um, I mean, at least some of us were caring and trying to lay some of the groundwork for, for what you're actively doing now. But um, the hopefulness derives from engagement, not from fantasy. I mean, so you're seeing on the ground and in people enough willingness to begin entertaining some of the more uh, uh, cooperative, interdependent ways of living than uh, it may look like when you watch cable news. Yeah, I, I really do think so. And I think the more we set up our platforms to emphasize what's most divisive or even, you know, set up competition in such a way between people such that, you know, there's not solidarity and workers are atomized and they're always fighting each other. You know, structures can do that. Our policies can do that. And our technologies can do that. And our work is to not do that. But you know, the second that we disrupt that atomization, we see so much solidarity. Right? I mean, there's like been a, a a historic wave of strikes in the U.S., for example, that is being, I think, massively underreported in a lot of ways. But what an incredible thing that hasn't happened in the U.S. in decades that folks have really come together and started demanding better working conditions and succeeding, um, you know, in, in so many different contexts. And similarly, much more excitement about cooperatives and and cooperatives, I think, have been systematically disprivileged by many of our policies. And now there's a push for policy to subsidize and allow for cooperative ownership. And maybe that will make a really big difference. Or there's these pushes for democratizing web platforms. Well, you know, for a long time, that felt like it was falling on deaf ears. But now there's a movement around it. So I think, are we seeing everything that we want to see in the world? Definitely not. And are many things quite dispiriting? Absolutely. But there's also this other side. And I think you can tell either story and to me, optimism is sort of this philosophy of the possible. And there will always be this possibility. And I think one thing that's an easy argument to make against optimism that doesn't benefit us, you know, the people who want to make the world better, the people at large, is how determined our current position is. Like, it was always going to end up this way. The world, you know, is an unfair place. Or uh, some, if I wasn't going to do it, someone else was going to do it. Like, this is, this is the way it is. And how contingent... The present is gives us this optimism for the future because we realize it could have been this way, it could have been another way, it could have been worse, it could have been better. That means going forward, it can still be worse and better and like change is possible and it comes from people, right? So I think I, I think about Eric Olin Wright. I think he he drew this distinction between like desirable alternatives and utopian alternatives and how much time people spend thinking about that versus viable alternatives, like real proposals <laughs> for transformation. And we love utopian alternatives. I love a good utopia, but Viable alternatives are kind of what we have and what we can move towards. And, and those viable alternatives are around us. Like utopia is not here yet. There's no nothing I can point to that can, that I can say like, this is it. This is the way the world should be. But viable alternatives are so present and they can get us there, I think. Well, and being happy with one of the viable alternatives is pretty utopian, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. You know, that one's good enough. That's, that's good enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take this, you know, sunny days, three days a week. It's fine. At least there's some sun. It's all good. So a great place to go to start finding out about this and to, to, to step into the new frontier of positive interdependent futures is where? Well, so I would say a bunch of different places. I'm really excited about the work the Radical Exchange Foundation is doing. Um, I'm really excited about the Ostrom workshop. Uh, I love the work that Versus has been putting out, Versus.xyz. You know, I work with this group called Exit to Community that helps organizations kind of 
you know, instead of like exiting to shareholders or exiting to public market, like how do you exit to your own community? And these are all just nascent initiatives. And these are just the ones I know, right? So I imagine folks in your area of expertise or in your neighborhood, I'm sure there's a groundswell of support in some ways for co-ops and collective organization. And so these are the spaces that I found that and really love, but you know, I'd encourage folks to find and create those um, because for the pluriverse, we need lots of them. Plurality. Right. So let's all right. do it. <laughs> and we'll keep you on. We'll get Team Human on the pluriverse as quickly as possible <laughs> because, uh, or, or the pluriverse into Team Human, as the case may be. But that's the beauty of it. One, exactly. Each thing wraps around the other. So thank you. Thank you for embracing Team Human. Team Human embraces you. And, uh, it's I'm I'm glad to be uh I'm glad to be dependent on you for uh, uh I'm dependent on you for for having a hope for the future and a a grounded hope that uh that real people and real places are going to uh uh join together and and realize that sovereignty is a team sport. So thanks for that. Thank you. It's an honor to be playing on Team Human with all of all of you, all of us. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was political economist and social technologist, researcher at the Radical Exchange Foundation, Divya Siddharth. You can find out more about Divya and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm. And while you're there, you can click on support to become a contributing member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and engineered by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.